Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Today, as we get into God's Word, we're going to look at the next section, Luke chapter 20, which is verses 19 to 26. And it's a pretty famous passage. What we're going to see is the religious leaders ask Jesus a question, and he gives this response that's become really famous, and we hear it quoted all the time. But before we read it, here's just the thing I want to point out is I don't think what Jesus says is really the point of the passage. Um, I don't think that's why Luke put it here in his gospel. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean, uh, but because we've heard it so often, I want to just throw that out there at the outset um, so that as we break this apart and look at it a little bit, um, let, let's be willing to think outside the box and hopefully take a fresh look at what God would be saying to us today as a church through his word. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll read this section. Heavenly Father, thank you for your people. Thank you that um, from the, the beginning of time, from creation, you have been all about creating a people who know you and love you and enjoy you. Uh, and we are the fruits of your labor. We are the, the fruits of your planning. Uh, we would not be here if you had not orchestrated it um, and ultimately brought everything to a head at the cross in Jesus and, and poured out your grace and love and made a way for us to come back to you. And so we thank you for what you've done for bringing us here. We thank you for your word that you speak to us. We pray that this morning you would help us to be responsive and obedient to it. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Luke chapter 20, verse 19. Here's what it says. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Sorry, I'm going blind in my young age. Let's try that again. Uh, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Um, You'll remember last week, Johnny shared about uh, the parable of the wicked tenants um, and how it really, the gist of it is that the servants who are working in the master's vineyard, which symbolizes the the religious leaders at the time in in Israel, um, really a, a prophecy of destruction saying that they are not being responsible, and so there will come a day when the Lord will come and destroy them and hand the vineyard over to someone who will be responsible with it. So Jesus has just shared this parable, and we see the Pharisees and the leaders' response is that um, they feared the people. They were angry, but they feared the people. Verse 20, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something that he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So there's that famous phrase that we hear a lot, especially around April 15th, tax time. uh, Render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. Uh, Or if if you've been in the church for a while, you're probably pretty familiar with that phrase. Um, And it's important. There's a lot of truth there and we can learn a lot from that. Uh, and, And we will see that a little bit later on. Like I said, I don't think that is necessarily why 
Luke put this passage here in the midst of this whole long book of Luke. Uh, and, and here's why. Um, if we look at the setup of this question in the surrounding context, what we see is, is Jesus has just entered Jerusalem and he comes in with guns blazing. He comes in and immediately he's on the attack, on the offensive, upsetting the Pharisees, making them angry. Um, what we see is in chapter 19, first he cleans the temple, then Pharisees come to him with questions and Jesus outwits them. He, he, he proves them wrong. Uh, then he tells this parable about their destruction. Uh, and then they ask him another question, he outwits them again, again. So really what we've got here is four or five different conflicts. And I think what Luke's doing here, why it's here, is because Luke wants us to see this building tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. The, the establishment is upset with Jesus. They're, they're at odds with him. And I think that's why Luke puts this here. Um, every good story has a couple of important parts. One is a protagonist. That's the main character, typically the good guy. Um, then you've got your antagonist, who's the person or the thing that's opposing the good guy. And then you've got some sort of conflict and a resolution. Like, that's how you make a good story. And all true stories have that as well. Uh, and what we see here is Jesus, the protagonist, the good guy, and we see this conflict beginning to build that ultimately is what takes Jesus to the cross. The Pharisees and the religious leaders get more and more upset and they begin to plot and plot. And then they seize the opportunity and they have him crucified. And we'll see that in the next few chapters. And so I think that's, that's why this passage is here. Um, one other thing, Luke is really contrasting for us the difference between Jesus and these religious leaders. Uh, what we see is Jesus is, is wise. He, he knows their hearts. He's come in. The people adore him. Um, and he's teaching and caring for the people. And, and as we've seen in all of Luke, he's, he's been healing the, the sick and then um, caring for the needy and the outcast. Um, but in these religious leaders, as soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem we see a completely different attitude. We see that they become deceitful. They become angry and, and murderous, trying to plot against him behind the scenes. Uh, and that's really because they begin to feel threatened. Um, their, their little kingdom, their way of life, their religious system is being threatened by Jesus, by his, his coming into town. Um, but here's an important thing for us to understand about the, the culture at the time, which is significantly different to ours. Um, Luke's really careful to point out here in chapter 20 that none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. There's always a crowd present. There's always people watching. So you got the crowd when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then clears out the temple. Um, in chapter 20, it says Jesus was teaching the people in the temple. That's in verse 1. Um, again, when they ask this question here, they're, they're afraid of the people. And the people, it, Jesus responds... They marvel. Um, and so there's always this crowd present, and Luke's very careful and intentional to highlight that for us. And that's because at the time, this society was based on honor and shame. I mean, that's different than our society today. We, we in the Western world, we tend to have this view of right and wrong that's very internalized. Um, it's, it's when I do something that I, I know is wrong, my conscience conflicts me, and then I become, I start to feel guilty and, and that's how I know it was wrong. Um, but in most of the non-Western world, so the Middle East here where Jesus is, um, Asia, Eastern Europe, uh, we see a different kind of culture, a different kind of society where it's based on these principles of honor and shame. So what matters so much isn't 
what internally I believe to be right or wrong. It matters what the community says is right or wrong, the people around me. So we think about that. That's like, um, you know, you watch ninja movies and stuff like that coming out of Asia, and there's a lot of this undercurrent of, like, if my family is shamed, it's the end of the world. It's, it's the worst thing that could happen is, is I don't want to bring shame on my family. I want my family to be honored and respected. And that's because um, this, this honor versus shame undertow, um, it really runs throughout the whole society. Um, a modern example that we actually came across when we were working for, for One Hope in, over in Europe, um, in Albania today, there's this thing called a blood feud. Um, and what it is, is it's a hundreds of year old, like code of conduct and laws. But basically the blood feud says, if someone kills or humiliates a member of your family, you are then obligated to kill a member of their family to restore your family's honor. Um, and this, when the communists were in Albania, they really cracked down on this and stopped it. But since communism died out in the 90s, there's been this resurgence. And there's, I think, about 10,000 people who've died over the last 20 years because of these blood feuds in Albania. There's thousands of um, boys and men. Once you turn 15, then you're eligible to either kill, if, if it's your, your family's turn to restore your honor, or you're eligible then to be killed. You become a target. And so there's thousands of boys and men who are in hiding because the only safe place for them is their homes. Now, to us, that sounds almost barbaric. Like, how could that be right? How could they live like this? They must know it's wrong. But it's, it's not a question of right or wrong so much. It's, it's just a different way of viewing life. It, it's not a, I've got this internal law that says, this is how I must act. In fact, one guy, he says this, a scholar of this, this sort of thing. He says, in an honor-shame society, one's actions are good or bad depending upon how the community interprets them. As long as the important people in the community approve of what you're doing, it's not bad and you shouldn't feel any shame. And even if that's a, it's a blood feud and, and you, you kill someone else to restore your family's honor, if the important people in your family and your society say that that's right, then it's right. Um, and, and to us, that, that's like, can that be right? Like, is that biblical? All sorts of conflicting conscience things. But reality is, this is the world that Jesus grew up in. This is the world that the Bible was written in. And so all throughout, if you look for it, you'll see these, this honor versus shame tension. Like in the Old Testament, um, all the time, you know, David or these other guys are calling on the Lord to act, and they say, Lord, let your name be honored. Like, your honor is going to be um, tarnished if, if you don't act. If, if you don't do this, then the Egyptians will, um, will, will mock you, will dishonor you. And so there's always, all throughout Scripture, this honor versus shame principle running throughout it. In Luke 20, what that means is it really ups the ante. Uh, because in this culture, honor versus shame meant everything. And so if you were ashamed and humiliated in front of people, well, that could mean that arranged marriages fall through. The, the bride's father thinks, oh, maybe he's not, not worth my, worthy of my daughter. Um, it could mean that long-time business partners all of a sudden don't do business with you because you're ashamed and they don't want to associate with you. It runs through everything. Here in Luke 20, is, is Luke consistently points out this crowd that's watching Jesus and the Pharisees and this repeated shaming of the Pharisees, it really ups it to a new level because if, if these guys 
are consistently ashamed, their reputation's ruined, the whole system's upset, they lose their, possibly their families, they lose their money, they lose everything. And so when we understand that, we can understand why they would begin to be so upset and murderous because Jesus is threatening them and he's shaming them in front of these large crowds. Now, what it means is that these leaders can't just go to the local marketplace and hire an assassin to go off Jesus in a dark alley because everyone knows Jesus has humiliated them. And so if they did that, if Jesus wound up dead in a dark alley somewhere, he'd become a martyr. He wouldn't, they wouldn't re- get their honor. People would probably assume that the religious leaders had done it because they couldn't, couldn't handle Jesus. Uh, what it means is that they've got to figure out a way to discredit Jesus to make him look bad, to make him look foolish, so that they can their honor is restored, the reputation is put back. Um, and if we think about it, ultimately it makes a lot of sense why the leaders begin to push for crucifixion. Um, in the Roman times, crucifixion was the most humiliating, most ashamed, or most shaming way to die. Uh, one Roman philosopher from the time, he says, crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. Roman citizens, he's saying, it's so shaming. Roman citizens shouldn't talk about it, think about it, see it, uh, because it's it's that cruel, that disgusting of a thing. And so, and you notice in verse twenty, it says that these guys, Pharisees and stuff, are sending spies to try to trap Jesus so they can hand him over to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. It's because the Romans were the ones who were allowed to kill people. The Romans were allowed to crucify people. And if Jesus, this awesome, adored, wannabe savior, is crucified on a cross and humiliated and mocked and shamed, well, then no one's going to follow him anymore. Now, we know that that's not true. We know that there was the cross, but then there was the, the empty tomb. And we know that this, me- this message, this testimony of Jesus has spread across the face of the globe and has changed the world. Uh, but that's what these religious leaders are thinking. They're thinking, we've got to discredit this guy. We've got to dishonor him so that we can have our place back in society. We can have our honor restored. Um, so we see them trying to trap Jesus here. Uh, this question about taxes, it was actually a really volatile issue at the time. Uh, it was in when Jesus was a young boy, like 6 AD, so Jesus was probably you know, between 5 and 10, um, there was actually a revolt by a guy called Judas the Galilean about this whole tax issue. He said, if you're giving taxes to Caesar, you are dishonoring God. There's, there's that honor-shame thing again, because God is the king. And so when you give taxes to someone else, you give tribute to someone else, you're saying that God's not king, that God is not the rightful authority. Uh, and so there have been several rebellions about this very issue. What it means is they come to Jesus with this question. They think they've got him stuck. They see only two ways out. They say, Jesus, teacher, we know you speak and teach rightly. Show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're they're flattering him. They're trying to appear sincere. And then in verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Well, I mean, on the surface, there's two things Jesus can say. He can say no, or he can say yes. Um, But if he says no, you can't give taxes to Caesar, it's unlawful then he's in trouble with the Romans. If they had telephones that day, like you better believe they had the Roman authorities on speed dial. 
hey, guess what this guy just said? Um, if Jesus says no, very likely he's in prison shortly thereafter, and he's executed as a criminal, as one who's trying to incite a resurrection. Uh, so no's not really a good option. They think they've got, did I say resurrection? Insurrection, thank you. Um, trying to incite an insurrection, revolution, um, treason, that sort of thing, a traitor to the Roman government. Um, we see in chapter 23, actually, they don't care what Jesus says. They falsely accuse him of it anyway. Um, verse 2 of chapter 23, they tell Pilate, he said we can't pay taxes to Caesar. Um, and so they, ultimately they don't care, but they think if, if he says no, he's in trouble. But what if Jesus says yes? If he says yes, it's okay to give taxes to Caesar, then what he's doing is he's really alienating everyone who follows him, because Jesus is from Galilee, and a lot of his followers, a lot of his disciples are Galileans. Uh, What we don't know, unless we research it, is Galilee was actually kind of a hotbed for this uh, rebellion, this anti-tax movement that was going on. Um, The guy who who led the revolt when Jesus was a young man was Judas the Galilean. He was from the same region, um, and there was this very strong anti-Rome, anti-tax sort of undercurrent going on in the Galilean society. Not only that, but if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he's also negating his, any claim to being the Messiah. Because as we've seen all throughout Luke, what these people are expecting the Messiah to do is to come into Jerusalem, to kick Rome's butt, to set the Israelites free, and to establish this perfect um, spiritual, physical realm where Israel's back on top. So if Jesus says, pay taxes, support Rome, well, then he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah wouldn't say something like that. So Jesus is really stuck here. He, he has kind of no way out. Um, the Romans think they've got to, or the religious leaders think they've got a win-win here. Um, so remember what I said at the beginning. I don't think the answer is necessarily the, the reason Luke put it here. But we can learn a lot from Jesus' response. Jesus says, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God's the thi- God the things that are God's. Typically, that's taken to be a reference to this kind of double citizenship that the Israelites had going on at the time. They were Israelites, they were, they were God's people, but at the same time, they were under Roman rule. So they had this, this Roman citizenship, and they had this, this Israelite identity or citizenship. Uh, and so when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's, he's saying, and not only that, they plot a denarius with Caesar's picture on it. And so in that, they're really saying, we already accept Caesar's rule. We're using his money. We're playing by his rules. We're part of his system. And so when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's saying, you, you get these benefits from Roman rule anyway. It's, it's right that you would pay your taxes, that you would support it. They, get, they had the Pax Romana at the time, which is this Roman peace that was famous because all across the Roman Empire, empire there was peace because of the huge Roman armies. They had the Roman armies to suppress any rebellions or any barbarian attacks and things like that. They had Roman roads, which was a huge benefit for trade and things like that. So Jesus says, you're getting these benefits. You're part of Rome's system. Like pay your taxes to Caesar. Give him what he's due. But at the same time, he says, render unto God the things that are God's. And he's saying, don't forget that Caesar isn't the ultimate authority. He's not the true king. Um, as the Israelites, they are the people of God. And so 
render unto God what's God's. Um, ultimately, that means everything. But he's saying, in rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, don't forget your loyalty to the true king, the one who really sits on the throne, the one who appoints Caesars and presidents and kings. He, he, he puts them in place and he takes them out um, as he wills. And so he's saying, do both. Be good citizens here in, in your wherever God has placed you, uh, but remember your ultimate allegiance is to God. And that's the same thing that, that it would mean for us today. Whether we find ourselves here in Northwest Indiana or in Brazil or in Saudi Arabia or wherever, um, as Christians, followers of Christ, we are to be good citizens. We are to be good, fruitful, loving, caring parts of whatever environment, community God places us in. This is the same kind of thing in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth. He says this, he says, Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically says, If you're Jewish, live as Jews. Don't remove the marks of your circumcision, he says. If you're Gentiles, you don't need to get circumcised. Honor God as a Gentile where you're at. Um, he goes so far as to say, slaves, if you're a slave, don't be concerned with it. Uh, if, if you can get your freedom, do it. That's great. But ultimately, it's not what defines you anymore. You're a follower of Christ. And he kind of sums it up there in Romans 7. He says, in whatever condition each person was called, there let him remain with God. And that's what this means for us this morning, is what, whatever situation God has called you in, for us, that means we're American citizens, we're most of us are, are Hoosiers now. Um, I grew up in Illinois, but now I'm a Hoosier. Um, we are citizens of Highland or Munster or Griffith. We are employees in a certain environment. So wherever you find yourselves, be good citizens. Be good, fruitful parts of that, that arena uh, and remain there with God. Give honor to God. Live unto God in whatever situation or environment he's called you in. That's huge here in America where there's often this combative attitude between God and state and religion and politics. And it's huge for us to get this, to understand what that means. He's not putting forth a political agenda. This isn't Jesus advocating anarchy or anything like that. Jesus isn't saying he's pro-Obama or against Obama. Uh, none of that. He's saying, wherever you're at, be a good citizen. Honor, honor the king or the president or the emperor. Honor God. Uh, that's big here for us. Um, but like I said, I don't think that's the main reason this passage is here in Luke 20. I think the real focus and the reason for it is to, like I said, highlight this, this tension growing between Jesus and the religious leaders. Because for them, Jesus is an inconvenience. He, he's threatening their way of life. He's threatening their kingdom, their way of living. And that's where it gets a little more personal for us because I don't think we're that different from the, the religious leaders. I, I don't think we are in a totally different place of life or we approach Jesus much differently because the reality is that every day we each have this opportunity to decide how we're going to respond to King Jesus. Because just like Jesus comes in there with this, this messianic claim, claiming to be the king, even if Jesus doesn't say it, everyone else is saying it. Um, Jesus says it after his resurrection. He says, all authority has been given to me. Um, but the reality is we're not that much different from these guys because we're confronted with the same question they are. How are we going to respond to King Jesus? 
I'll, I'll admit it, like in my life, it's easy to, to live the way I want. It's easy to live for my own pleasure. Think about the work day and stuff yesterday. It's easy to not do things like that. Um, it's easy to spend my Saturdays watching college football or hanging out at home, reading a good book, whatever. It's easy to live for my own little kingdom, for what I want, for what would make me happy, and to pursue pleasure and things like this. But as I'm doing that, as I'm living my life however I want, king of my own kingdom, I meet Jesus, and Jesus comes and says, everything's got to change, because the king's changing. It's a regime change, if you will. Um, Jesus comes in with full authority, and he says, I'm the king, and you either align yourself with me, or you align yourself with those who oppose me. Um, They're the two options he leaves us. But in this, guys, we see God's incredible grace, because we just saw in Luke 19, Jesus isn't this demanding king who comes and says, do it my way, or get out. He also weeps over the people who reject him. He's this loving king. Um, There is this very real costly call of Christ. We actually sang about it this morning. Uh, I think it was the second song, Marvelous Light. It said, your love, it beckons deeply, a call to come and die. Um, and, and, and so we sing these things. And as, as we come to Christ, as we encounter King Jesus, we're faced with this thing. Who is going to be king of my life? Is it going to be me trying to run things my way and do my, my own thing? Or am I going to respond to the call of Christ and say, all right, Jesus, you're on the throne. It's your way. We're doing things your way here. Um, reality is that when we come to Jesus because of his great love for us, this dying becomes our delight. Um, this is why Jesus can say things like, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because he, he showers such grace upon us that even though it is a costly call, it doesn't feel like it. It becomes a joy and a delight to, to respond to our king, to obey to our king. For me, this really kind of came to a head a couple years ago. Um, I grew up in a Christian home, grew up going to church. I knew all the right things to say. I knew all the songs and things like that. Uh, but I was, I was really doing the church thing for my own pleasure, for my own approval. Because when I answered the question at youth group, you know, people would smile. I knew, I knew Johnny would be happy because he was a youth pastor. Or I knew that everyone else would be like, wow, Larry really gets it. Larry really understands it. Um, it, was, it was to boost my ego. It was for my own approval. Um, I was doing all these things because I wanted the approval of men. For me, what this meant um, a few years ago, I came to a, a point where I said, Lord, I, I'm a sham. I'm, I'm a fake. Um, I'm, I'm doing these things, but it's empty. Um, really, I was just like the religious leaders. I was a huge hypocrite. Uh, it's funny because on the surface, most people probably wouldn't be able to tell. Um, I was great at putting on a smile when you show up at church, and yeah, things are great. It's been a really good week. God is good. Um, I was great at that. Absolutely fantastic. Um, But it came to a point where I I said, Lord, I I can't do this anymore. Um, I had this weight of, of guilt and shame on my back because I knew that as I was faking my way through things at church and looking real good doing it, my life was empty. And I, I was living my life for other things. I was struggling with, with pride. I was struggling with lust. I was struggling with 
just my incredible selfishness, wanting everything to be about me, to make me feel good. That's why I lived. Uh, and so I came to this point in January a couple of years ago, and I said, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Um, the real issue was grace for me, because growing up in the church, I knew what grace was. You know, grace is unmerited favor. It, you know, it's, it's the fact that God loves us, even though we don't deserve it. It's, it's unearned affection, unearned favor. I could define that, but I, I came to God and I said, Lord, I don't, I don't know what this is. I've never experienced this. I, I need it. Um, and it took a three-month process of me almost nightly sitting on my bedroom floor with my Bible open in front of me, crying out to God. Um, I've never, that's the only time I've ever had to spend three months like this, just broken before the Lord. Lord, I need to know this. I, I read everything about great, God's grace I could get my hands on. Lord, I need to know this. I, I can't carry this burden any longer. And after three months, by the grace of God, one night I'm reading Colossians chapter 2, same passage I've read a million times before, and something just clicked. Um, I wrote, I took a piece of paper, and I never do things like this, but I felt like the Lord said, write on there all the things you've done wrong that you can call to mind. So I wrote on there, you know, anger, lust, pride, selfishness, greed. Paper was full. Um, and I felt like the Lord said, go downstairs, and throw it in the fireplace. Uh, it, it's gone. This, this is grace, is that it's gone. Take a new paper, write across the top of it who I am now. And, and it was a blank paper. There was no record. And that's what Colossians 2 actually says. It says, God set aside the record of our debts, nailing it to the cross. And so that was when it really became real to me. Um, I, I had struggled with this, this weight, this wanting to do things right, wanting to get things right, trying to earn God's approval and people's approval. And all of a sudden, grace clicked in. And it was like, this, this burden's gone. This, this yoke is light. Uh, it wasn't, I'm doing these things to be loved by God. It's, I'm loved by God, so now I can do these things. And, and that makes all the difference in the world for us, guys. That is, that is grace. But, so that's where it starts. But this, this kingship of Christ really affects every area for us. Um, Jesus says in Luke 9, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's Jesus is saying, if anyone wants to come follow me, this isn't just for the hardcore or the real, real good Christians. He's saying, if anyone wants to come follow me, he's got to die. He's got to take up his cross, walk down that road and follow me. Now, what this means for us is that it can hit home in a lot of different areas. Because Jesus wants, Jesus wants, Jesus demands to be king of all of our lives. And so for for some of us, that might mean it's finances. Um, submitting to Christ's kingship in our finances, it means that we don't have the right to decide where we spend our money anymore. And we don't have the ultimate say. Dave Ramsey doesn't have the ultimate say. He's got some good things to say, but we don't follow Dave Ramsey like he's God. It means we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, help me to have an obedient heart. Show me where to spend my money. Show me what I should save. Show me what I should do with it. Because he's on the throne, and so he gets to make those decisions, not us. For some of us, and I know there's a lot of young families here. I know there's a lot of newlyweds and a couple people who are engaged in things. What this means for us, husbands and wife, is marriage isn't about you. If you're engaged, you know what I mean? Marriage, it's not about you, bro. Like, you got to get that, man. Just trust me on this one. 
it's not about you. What this means if Jesus is on the throne is that our marriage is about the king. It's about Jesus, and it's about making us more like him and making him look good. And so, husbands, that's why we love our wives. That's why we lay down our lives for our wives, because that's what the king did, and we want to be like the king. Wives, this is why you don't compete with your husbands to... to or this is why you don't shame your husbands. This is why you don't beat him up when he messes up, but you extend grace to him, because we will mess up. Uh, but that's why you extend grace, because that's what Jesus did. And as the church, we respond to Christ with submission, with obedience. Um, we respond to him with joy, following his leadership. And so, wives, the fact that King Jesus is on the throne means that this is how you live as a wife. It, it has implications for everything. Our friendships means our friendships don't exist for us anymore. They exist for the king. And so what that means is, with our Christian friends, are we intentional to encourage them in Christ, to point them to the king, to talk about the king? Or is it just shallow, surfacey sort of stuff? No, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, with friends who don't know the Lord, are, are you intentional to try to introduce them to the king? Are you intentional to talk about how King Jesus has come into your life and changed everything. He's affected the entire way that you live. Or are we not? I know for me, this is my struggle, guys. I, I grew up here, I graduated college, and I left for a year and a half. And I came back after getting married in April. I don't know anyone who doesn't really know Jesus. Like, all my good friends know Jesus. Everyone I spend time with. So I'm just like, Lord, where do I find people who don't know you like, it, consistently? Where do I rub shoulders with these people so that I can have opportunities to talk about King Jesus. Now, these are the kind of questions we should ask. If, if you have friends who don't know Jesus, let's hang out. Like, let's spend time together. Seriously, like, help me as your brother. I want to talk about Jesus. We need to talk about Jesus. We want to be people who are excited to talk about Jesus. When we have people in our homes, we should be talking about Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. Guess what I did with my Saturday? I gave it up to go serve at a small school in Gary. Why would you do that? Because Jesus is awesome. Because he, he wants me to do things like that. Because they're serving Jesus. My point is that this area of Jesus' kingship affects all of our lives. Um, it affects every area. Um, last week, Johnny warned us, and he said, um, don't walk in ignorance. I don't know if you remember that if you were here. But Jesus gives this parable about the wicked tenants, and he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So he really left us with, with this solemn warning of don't oppose King Jesus because ultimately you will lose. Um, and that, that's a heavy thing, but it's an important thing for us to get because Jesus extends such grace to us, but eventually there will come a day when we will be held to account. This morning, we see again this kingship of Christ, this call to respond by submitting everything to him by saying, Lord, you're the king on the throne, so it's all yours. Tell me what to do. Uh, we see that again this morning. There's this hymn. I asked a couple people about it yesterday, if you were at the work day. Apparently no one knows it, uh, but it's on the internet, so it must be a real hymn. Someone must have written it sometime. Uh, it's actually written by John Newton, and I don't know for sure the title, but here's how it goes. Uh, this is just a couple stanzas. It says, Thou art coming to a king, Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. 
With my burden I begin. Lord, remove this load of sin. Let thy blood for sinners spilt set my conscience free from guilt. Lord, I come to thee for rest. Take possession of my breast. There thy blood-bought right maintain and without a rival reign. And I just feel like that's, that's what the Lord would say to us this morning is that we come to him for rest. This, the hymn writer's prayer is, with my burden I begin, Lord, remove this load of sin. Set my conscience free from guilt. And he says, Lord, I come to thee for rest. And so this morning we, we've recognized, we've prayed for people who are struggling. We, we know that life is hard, that the enemy is against us, that it is not an easy road to follow Christ. It's, it's hard to fight against our flesh every day. It's hard to believe what the gospel says about us, that we are, are dead to our old selves, that we are alive to Christ. It's hard to do these things. And so like the, the author of this hymn, we can come and we can say, Lord, with my burden I begin. Lord, remove this load of sin. Lord, I come to thee for rest. But at the same time, with the hymn writer, we have to say, there thy blood-bought right maintain, and without a rival reign. Our prayer needs to be both. Not just, Lord, make life easy, but you are Lord, so help me to respond to who you are. Help me to live rightly in light of who you are. Um, and so I'm going to pray, um, but as, as we wrap this up, um, you ushers, you guys can get ready to pass out the communion. Um, guys, let's run to King Jesus together. Because whether you've never done it before or you call yourself a Christian and there's areas where you recognize that you haven't recognized Christ's authority, you haven't submitted to him, he, he stands there with arms open and his grace is still enough this morning so that we can all run to him, so that this, this load of sin can be taken off, so that we can find the grace and the strength we need to submit our lives to him like we should. So I'm going to pray. Um, and ushers, you guys can start passing out the communion, and then Tim will lead us in taking it in a few moments. Um, but let's just pray. King Jesus, help us to uh, recognize who you are. We thank you that you are a Savior. Oh, we need you, Lord. And my load of sin, the, the guilt and the shame I so often feel for how much I fail you. Thank you, Lord, that you died uh, and that you've already borne that load, um, that it's already taken care of. Uh, it is finished, is what you said on the cross. So thank you for just the grace and mercy you so often show me and show all of us. Lord, but as we, we hear this challenge of your word, this challenge to respond to you as king, how are we going to respond Lord, we ask for grace and we ask for strength. We pray that you would open up our eyes to see areas where we have been living as king of our own lives or something else is on the throne. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to obey you. That we would turn from idols. That we would turn from making ourselves king and turn to the true king where we find life and we find hope and we find grace and mercy in time of need. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would help us to obey. Help us to put it into practice. In Jesus' name.